Welcome to this week's edition of Rational Radio. Cracking show coming up. Unfortunately, markets under more pressure. COVID-19 is getting its grip, getting its teeth into the investment community as well as in South Africa. But we'll be finding out the best way to handle all of this in just a moment. As always, it's a warm welcome to David Shapiro as we kick off the show with a market that's down about 6%, 5 6% today, Dave. Uh, at the moment, the all share index down about 5%. Yeah, but uh, metals down 9, 9, 10% and uh, industrials as well. So it's been a widespread sell-off. You know, I, I watch 80 shares, which are the largest cap, carefully. Um, I watch those um, on a spreadsheet, and all 80 are down at the moment. Mm. So it's 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 that kind of uh, it's that kind of day, Alec. It's uh, very difficult. David, did you see the trading statement that came out from Famous Brands? It's um, uh, I, I I there's so much there's so much on sense about the different companies uh. that are implementing different issues but I, I just, oh yes it just mm, came out yeah mm. i see it now yeah and and really what they're up to is they're saying they're going to look after their food delivery uh, they, they're going to practice social distancing and so on but when we uh, spoke with the croniers in china they said when they wanted to get to go out to eat they had to sit at different tables so i don't think we quite got to that point in south africa yet uh, yeah, no, 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 not at all. I think, you know, I was in Melrose Arch over the weekend just uh, to go buy supplies and that. And I naturally, you, you, I parked down there and I looked in at the restaurants and there were the odd table where people were dining. And uh, most of the restaurants were open, but uh, very, very few people um, around. I went into Woolworths. Woolworths, strangely enough, was stocked. But there again, um, no more than a handful of people at the tills. Normally, there are a lot more, certainly on a weekend. So people are avoiding each other and uh, not wanting to go out. So I think I think the message is getting through. Well, let's bring in Grace Harding now. She's the chief executive of Ocean Basket. Grace, lovely to have you on the program today. Uh, what David says about people not going out to restaurants, are you seeing it? This uh, are you seeing a similar situation? Oh, yes, definitely. I mean, I think uh, our sales over the weekend were about 58% down. And uh, um, up until the other day, I was still thinking about, gee whiz, what are we going to do to keep the trade going, to keep the customers coming in? And then I woke up this morning and I thought, well, I guess we need to get some advice from our forefathers because it feels like it is World War Three with different ammunition. And uh, as a restaurant group, obviously eating out is not a necessity like toilet paper, which has become number one on the list, apparently. But we definitely are seeing a massive decline. Grace, it was interesting to read through the Favis brand statement, them being listed in the stock market they, and having UK operations yes. as well. They say that in the UK, it was on the 1st of March that their sales started plummeting. In South Africa, 16th of March. So it's about a two-week gap between the yes. two. Have yes. yours, has, has the 16th also been a day, um, a red-letter day, for, poor red-letter day for you? 
Yeah, I think uh, the trends in everything is that South Africa is two weeks behind. I mean, we hear that we're even two weeks behind in terms of the the impact of the virus ramping up. But I can say very, very similar. Mm. And how bad is it or how much of a difference is it from, say, the 1st of March? Night and day. Like, you can't even compare it. It's a bit like you went to bed. And things were starting to look very strange around this virus. And then you woke up and the guns were outside your door. That, that's how different it was. David, and what was so weird is that January and February were great months. They really, really were. So it was just uh, really, it feels like uh, we've been hijacked, you know, by a big, bad virus. It's an interesting point in bringing David back in again. Uh, I spoke with Hendrik de Toy, Dave, on Friday, and he yeah. said that from an investment perspective, it's almost like uh, a war has been declared. He said it's, it's like a war economy. The governments are going to have to spend, as they do in wartime, without any thoughts. Interesting to hear Grace mentioning a moment ago that it feels like we've gone to war as well. Is, is that the way you're reading it? It is. Uh, in fact, one investment man... Uh, described it as World War Three. He says, but it's going to be a 90-day World War Three. It's exactly like that. People have gone into hiding. I think, you know where it's different, though? You haven't got the human spirit. We're all alone. We're all sitting by ourselves with our wives, with our families. Yes, it's bringing families together again. But um, in those times, even in war times, you could go out, you could see neighbors, there, there was closer communication between families or, you know, families and friends. You could sit around and, uh, and, and talk about things. Uh, I think this is the difference here, and this is what makes it psychologically so different, is that, you know, you walk past someone in the street and you don't, don't want to, uh, you don't want to greet them just in case they cough or splutter. You know, you want to keep your distance, and that's, that for me is a very strange thing. They're closing down parks and nobody wants to run or be next to somebody else. So we're going into a totally different environment now, which is so antisocial and, and understandably so. Well, antisocial, I guess, excepting there is social media, which would make things a bit easier. But just in the, in the real world, Grace, in, in, your, in your world, what about your staff? Presumably you gear up for the same kind of yeah. uh, numbers that you had in January, February, you can't just tell all your staff to go home, or can you? Yeah, yeah. So we're working on a few priorities. The first is people come first, and I guess this is when we're lucky that we're not a public company because we can make decisions that, I guess, are driven by our shareholders. And the first thing our shareholders said to us is, Grace, the people come first. It doesn't matter what happens to our investment, which is absolutely mind-boggling, and that's the way it should be in my mind. So that's the first point. The second thing is we are a franchise business. We have seen all our restaurants shut down all over the world. So Cypress restaurants, we actually own those. Those are the only restaurants we own. They shut down Kazakhstan, Kuwait, Oman, Dubai, Mauritius. So zero, zero income coming in from them. So it's about people, our own head office people, um, we are still going to be paying their salaries. We're okay for a while. Um, we don't know how long this war is going to take. Um, I heard you say 90-day war. Gee whiz, from your lips to everyone's ears that it's a 90-day war. If, the if restaurant it, staff hmm, is if it more is 90, challenging. Grace, if it is 90 days, yeah. uh, are you guys able to see it through? Yes, 100% we are. The restaurants are a challenge. You know, some some restaurant owners 
obviously are not as frugal as others and everyone has different conditions. But uh, we started communicating with our restaurants literally on the 18th of March and we're doing everything to support them. Uh, we haven't charged any royalties and marketing in March already. We stopped it even though we had half a month of decent trade. So we are able to do what's best for the longevity of the brand and the well-being of the people. And then the other thing we're implementing is we're starting up our own little school because we either use the war analogy or the delay of the Olympics analogy. And we know that we will run one day and we will remain fit. So we're developing a whole curriculum of things that we want people to learn from improving Excel sheets to understanding GPs, waste management, all sorts of things. And everyone in our community is going to be encouraged to learn. And then obviously the sort of the office workers and us who have to run the business, we are, we are really, really busy. Grace, what about dark kitchens? We know there has been a trend in the whole fourth industrial yeah. revolution to more convenience foods. Can your franchisors uh, not just change things around and start producing for the takeaway market? Well, look, we already have kitchens, so it doesn't matter whether look at it. And at the moment, they're dark anyway. Um, so we believe that, yes, some people are still doing, doing takeaways. That's going to drop because everyone's going to hold on to their cash. I mean, how many people already have sort of scaled down their lifestyle, not only sort of uh, sort of middle management or blue-collar workers? So I don't know what these dark kitchens are going to do because how many people are going to carry on spending X amounts a month on this luxury product? So we do have restaurants. They do have kitchens. They are able to deliver. They are able to do takeaways. And I don't believe that that business is going to thrive. All right, so even uh, on the restaurant side, you uh, we seem to have a bit of a problem there on the line. Um, just, just very briefly, yeah. on the restaurant side, you've seen, a, as you say, a, a drop of 58% just in the last couple of days. But on the takeaway side, there hasn't been a, uh, an increase on the other end. No, I think there was a little burst on uh, Uber Eats. Uh, we haven't got the stats from the other delivery companies. When I get them, I'll share them with you. I'll just pop you a mail. But uh, if there has been a burst, Alex, I do believe it's short-lived. Grace Harding, the Chief Executive of Ocean Basket, bringing us up to date there. Okay, Mr. Shapiro, we've seen that the markets struggled a little bit this morning. Getting back to that war analogy, if it's a 90-day war, you would look at things differently. If this war continues for longer than 90 days, then one has to maybe conserve cash at all costs. Why do you think that 90 days could be the, the term? Maybe I'm too optimistic or uh, maybe I've been around too long. But the one thing about markets is that once they begin to discount the bad news, people start to look differently at uh, share prices or at life. And I think we've seen... I think we've seen the worst in the news. In other words, there's no more shock value. I call it shock value in that um, we know it's around. We know we're going to lockdown. We know all of that. You know, um, when when Goldman Sachs comes out and says, oh, the U.S. economy is going to be 30% down, we know that. We closed the world down. So what do you expect? You know, we don't expect anything else. So that kind of news is not really forcing us out anymore. It's only uh, the marginal players that are saying, okay, let's get out now. So I would imagine we're going to start seeing 
the signs of a bottoming of the market. It's not going to feel like that. You know what I mean? It's not going to feel like that to you. But um, that's why I say we're probably closer to the end um, than than the beginning. Mm. And also, sorry, after a few months or after a few weeks of this, Alec, people start to say, hold on a sec, I can't stay, hold up. You know, I'm going to get out. I'm going to start doing things. And they look at ways in which to uh, get their life back uh, enormous. So they will start to go to Grace's restaurant or start the Uber Eats and start spending and trying to improve uh, the lifestyle that they're, they're leading. And I'll come to other things uh, as we talk as well. So I'm saying, hold on a sec. Don't Don't position yourself for disaster. Rather try and position yourself for what, things are going to look like when this ends. Isn't it just the, the right thing to do now is not to try and catch any falling knives and not to throw no. uh, good money potentially after bad, but just to sit on the sidelines, as you've been advising actually over the last couple of weeks, yeah. and just wait for things to settle? Right. Exactly like, right. You know, and, and look for opportunities. Start thinking. You know, start thinking about your portfolio and where you want to be. What will the world look like? I don't think it's going to change. I think we're going to go back to where we are. Although I think that um, when I say go back to where we are, I still think the same economy will prevail. I've been a big believer in the tech economy. Alec, when I see you in your studio, and I mean sitting there doing very good radio, but you're handling everything. Remember the old days where you had sunshine and you had a whole lot of production teams, etc. Yeah, and Dominic and Janine and everyone in the back end organizing interviews. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So, so just think about that. Just think about how conditions have changed and how we're embracing uh, this so-called data economy. And uh, I think it's going to prevail. And I think that uh, the big tech companies are still going to forge ahead. They've got plenty of money. Um, they're going to continue with their R&D, research and development, looking for new products. I think we're going to see massive changes in health and healthcare and pharmaceuticals. So I, I'm saying, hold on, <laughs> there's going to be plenty of opportunity for us to make up the kind of losses that we have um, at, the, at, at the moment. Now, here's a theory, so, uh, also um, one that I have to ascribe to Hendrik de Toy, who, by the way, his company, uh, 91, can you believe that? Uh, the bad luck about their listing. Today it's down 17% again. It's at 24 and 50. I know. And uh, Hendrik has worked so hard <laughs> to do this, to get this company uh, off the ground. He's worked so hard in, uh, in the Investec stable, etc. And for him and for his staff who wanted to go alone, who saw, um, you know, that, that's been their strategy. They felt that they should be apart from the bank. And just to see their shares tumble like this and the business so difficult to pick up uh, is, is, is very disheartening. But uh, listen, Hendrik's been through a few himself. He started in 1991. So I can name at least six or seven downturns that he's already experienced. So uh, he's hardened and uh, will pick up from where he is at the moment. The point he made, though, was in a war economy, the governments don't care about... Uh, restraining their spending because they they shouldn't. And what's the point in restraining your, your spending? And the Germans have actually taken over the country. Or you you're talking German in, in in a year's time. And and we have well Germans, not Germans this time. Uh, that if if you don't spend, if you don't fight back against it in a war economy, you're going to capitulate to a different enemy. 
Is that, though, in the long term, not yes. sowing seeds for inflation, for, for escalation in asset prices, simply because there'll be just so much more money around? I, I hope so. <laughs> you know what I mean? I, 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 I'm not scared about it. That doesn't scare me. And I think that once we do get inflation, if we do get inflation, remember we said the same thing in 2007, 2008, 2009 about inflation. We were dead scared that these um, policies that Bernanke was increasing would uh, send inflation through the roof. We haven't seen it in 10 years, and we're probably not going to see it. I, I don't understand it. I don't think economists understand it. So I don't think at this point inflation is, a, is an issue. You know what the, big, the point is? Uh, when you listen to Grace, the point is that we've got to make sure that her business survives. That's that's what the point of government is, to make sure that these businesses, um, the plants, the... Um, you know, remain intact, that you continue to remain, to, to, to maintain your productive capacity and that your workers, you don't throw away workers who've got skills and who've you, and, and, and whom you've trained. And that's the point. That's where government has got to come in and they've got to do whatever they can. They've got to get cash to places like, uh, like, like Grace's company. They've got to say to her, what do you need to survive over the next three months so that you don't go down the tubes, that we don't lose your business? Uh, whether we've got that in South Africa, I don't know. But that's the point that, that the UK is trying to do, that Europe's trying to do, that, uh, uh, that the US is trying to do. That's their, that's their aim and motivation. David, you knew Sol Kersner, um, the, the late Sol Kersner. He passed away Saturday night. Uh, I, I guess there aren't too many South African businessmen who have made quite the imprint that he did on the world. No, I remember him very well because I actually spent my honeymoon, which was in 1971 at uh, Beverly Hills. And uh, that was his first venture um, into luxury hotels. And, and from then on, of course, Sol's name became known. You know, here was this man who uh, I think his parents owned some, some, some hotels down in Durban. I don't remember his history. But I mean, from then on, you know, what Sol did, you know, there's, there wasn't a year that, that went by where he didn't do something exceptional. And he took on the world, you know, by saying taking on the world, the million dollar at uh, Sun City. Mm. He was the first person. I mean, there was just so many. Well, uh, and, and a very, very colorful man. Well, we've got the right person to give us insights into Sol. And uh, we cross to London now, or to the UK anyway, to Ian Douglas. Uh, Ian, how long were you and Sol friends? And, well, how long did you work for him? Yeah, morning, Alex. It's nice to be on your show. Um, yeah, I worked for Sol for just some um, 20 years. Um, but, I mean, I knew him for much longer than that. I knew him, you know, for probably, you know, most of my my adult life. I, in fact, remember very clearly when the uh, first time I actually saw him uh, was when he was walking into the, um, the Sun City main sort of foyer there, the very impressive foyer down by the casino, uh, with Annalene Creel on his arm um, after the Frank Sinatra concert, and I think wow. that was in about 1979. Well, then David's uh, uh, honeymoon would have been a few years before that. Do you remember that early history, uh, Sol's parents? Did they yes, own I do. Yes, absolutely. No, I, I know the history well. Um, yes, his parents, in fact, uh, they, they came out to South Africa in the 30s from what was then Poland or, you know, sort of, you know, just kind of 
between Poland and, Ru- and Russia. Um, and uh, they settled in South Africa. And then, you know, Sol was born in 1935. So, you know, 84, as you said in your, in your previous remarks. And the, they actually ran a cafe in Bears Valley in the area, you know, uh, south of Joburg, uh, which was a rough neighborhood in which uh, Sol grew up. Uh, but they owned hotels, uh, a couple of hotels. The first hotel they purchased the lease on was a hotel called the Menorah, obviously the Menorah from the Jewish faith, the Candle, as you know. Uh, and that was a tiny uh, hotel. And then they purchased something called the Palace Hotel. Uh, but Sol's real first sort of break, as it were, was in 62, uh, when he bought the lease on what was called the Astra Hotel in uh, in Durban, which was a, a small hotel, but which he started the uh, first sort of proper nightclub, um, you know, offering in in Durban, which was called the Talk of the Town, and that was in '62. Is it still around, the Astra? No, I don't think it is. Um, I think it's probably been converted into some kind of residential development now. But he, um, but uh, you know, it's behind the all the other hotels that he built. You know, such as the Elamgeni, the Maharani, etc., on the on the Durban beachfront. Yeah, what used to be called the Golden Mile. I'm sure they still call it the Golden Mile that's, in in, that's in Durban. Correct. Yeah. Uh, you know, yeah, I think that's right. How come Sol went into accountancy first off? Because if you if you just traced his his background, were his parents keen to, as immigrants often are, to give him an education in inverted commas? Is that why he became a senior? Yeah, I think. I think that's exactly right. You know, he was um, he was apparently a very diligent student. Um, that's what he used to tell me. Um, and yeah, he was um, I think looking for a solid profession, as so many you know young kids were in those days, and went off and started chartered, chartered accountancy at Wits, and you know graduated and went to the accounting firm called Walpert and Abrams, which was a you know one of the leading Durban firms. Um, Devon, as you know, of course, at that time was the, you know, the sort of place to be. Uh, Cape Town at that point in, in South Africa's history was kind of not really that well celebrated, not well, that not that well known. Durban was where everyone went from Johannesburg. Um, and he was with Walpert and Abrams for a few years. And I think, you know, just clearly decided he wanted to get into hospitality. Uh, and that was when he made the move to at least the Astra, and then the first venture, of course, the Beverly Hills, uh, which was opened in 64, December, December of 64, in Mshlanga Rocks. Now, I remember Mshlanga Rocks at that time, Alec, was, um, you know, cane fields, sugar cane fields. There was nothing out there. Uh, and he saw this piece of land, which was next to, you know, sort of seaside weekend cottage type thing. And he decided that that was where he was going to build you know, South Africa's first five-star hotel, uh, 90 rooms. He went overseas one trip. Uh, I think he allowed himself one trip, and he flew to Miami um, or through New York to Miami. He always used to tell the very famous story that um, he was in the elevator in um, one of the buildings in New York. And uh, in those days, of course, they had elevator ladies, ladies who used to operate the elevators. And this lady was in tears, floods of tears. And uh, he asked her, you know, what, what's wrong? You know, can I help? And she said, no, our president has just been shot. And that was, of course, Kennedy uh, who was shot 
around that time. I don't remember the exact date. But he went on this trip and he basically explored what uh, he thought uh, were the leading hotels uh, of um, that sort of seaside location of Miami and uh, Florida. And he came back and he built what he felt was his version of that to bring five-star luxury to South Africa. Incredible that he way ahead of his time in so many respects, but uh, in that way too. Nowadays, if we want to build something in this country, we do go and look internationally. He was, right. very, he was very driven, though, um, talking to – everybody's got their sulkers in the story. So uh, talking yeah. to people who worked for him, it, it was not unusual to get a 2 a.m. phone call from Mr. Kuzner to say, I need to meet with you now. <laughs> Where did this come from? Yeah, 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 yeah. No, absolutely. I mean, he was, he was very driven. He was a guy who you know, had a temper. It was well-known he had a temper. But the great thing about Saul was that you, you always knew where you stood from him. Somebody once said to me, uh, you know, you're in trouble when, Stom- when Saul stops talking to you um, because, you know, he was always just very engaged and always on top of all the detail. And if he stopped talking to you, he clearly had written you off and was going to move on. Um, but, yes, he used to call people at uh, all times of the night. He was, you know, he's a guy who got his hands very dirty. I mean, he used to be on the site um, uh, at, you know, whatever, five in the morning or midnight, what have you. And um, that was the way he worked. Uh, he didn't seem to have much need for sleep like some of the other, um, you know, great leaders of the world. And he, um, you know, he used to just keep going. Uh, he, of course, was drinking quite heavily at the time, but, you know, he gave up uh, alcohol and cigarettes in the, in, uh, when he was about 70 and was uh, total for the rest of his life. He comes from a working class background, as you've explained, Bears Valley, uh, pretty tough those days. He was also fairly short. I remember meeting him a few times, and, and uh, right. he, I, I'm not sure what, five foot six or so, but. Uh, Probably but, about five, six, five, five, seven, something like that, yeah. But, uh, but as a result, he must have been picked on, I guess, as kids do, and, and then he, he took up yeah. boxing, and I, I love that saying that uh, you, in the, in the incredible eulogy that you guys put together, that, that Saul Thank would you. say, keep boxing on, or just box on. Yeah, you got to box on. Yeah, you got to box on. I mean, he was, you're right, he was, um, he was well known for that expression. And he was one of those guys who, you know, it was, it was a bit of a dichotomy in a way, because, you know, he played in the symphony orchestra in Johannesburg when he was a kid. And at the same time, you know, took up boxing and became the welterweight champion of uh, Witts University. Um, he, he always used to say he took up boxing out of self-defense. He grew to love the sport. Uh, you know, he thought it was, a, you know, one of his great passions. And he used to, um, you know, do a lot of boxing fights with a very good friend of his, a very close friend, one of his best friends, Bob Arum, the legendary Bob Arum of top rank. Um, and, uh, yeah, but he was, he was certainly one of those guys who, uh, who, who certainly came from, you know, the more difficult side of the tracks or the rough side of the tracks and, and made good. And I think that was a great thing about Saul. He kind of never really forgot his, his, his background or his origins. He was, you know, he was, um, someone who, some of his best friends were the guys that he was at school with or in the army with and, and they remained his friends till, his dying day. He also, uh, well, you mentioned Bob Arum, who I think most South Africans of a, a, a more mature age would remember brought 
world yeah. boxing to this country, even uh, even Correct. champions in Kheri Kutsia. But uh, he, he is also incredibly well connected elsewhere. When you when you mention names like Frank Sinatra, Freddie Mercury, right. Elton John, right. Shirley Bassey, Liza Minnelli, he uh-huh. knew them all very well and, and managed to bring them to what was then a very isolated South Africa. Yeah, that's right. He, I mean, he knew them all. He, he, you know, liked to spend time with them. And I think they like to spend time with him. And, um, you know, Bob Arum is still, um, today working in boxing. It's quite a remarkable story. He's, he's over 80 and he's, he's just one of those guys that keeps on going. Uh, and he's working with his, his son in the business, I think, and it's going really well. Um, but yes, he knew a lot of, uh, a lot of famous people and he made it his business to, to know them and, you know, brought them out, as you said, to South Africa in groundbreaking events. David, your previous uh, guest was was mentioning the, the million dollar. I mean, when the million dollars started, a uh, million dollars was a huge sum of money. There was no other golf tournament in the world that offered that sort of prize money, and you know that was Sol's genius. The story behind the million dollars is an interesting one, though, because it was actually Lee Trevino, who was a friend of Sol's, who said to him, "You know, if you really want to kind of get get yourselves on the map, if you want." people to know where South Africa is and where Sun City is, offer a prize of a million dollars, and, and that was what he did. Fascinating. Uh, he always thought bigger than everyone else. When he built the Lost City, it was, well, Sun City itself, yeah. but then the Lost City was, yeah. a, was a huge yeah. amount of money, I recall, over a billion rand for those days. Wh- what yeah. was it about him? How, how can the rest of us lesser mortals learn from someone who, who somehow just didn't seem to have any limits to his ambitions and dreams? Yeah, I think, you know, I think it was one of those things where Sol, you know, dreamed big, but it was also practical. I mean, he was had a real grasp of the numbers. So it wasn't just fantasy stuff and, uh, you know, somebody writing big checks. He, he really sort of, um, you know, understood um, what what drove people. He understood, I think, what true hospitality meant. Uh, and and he did his, he did his homework. So, uh, you know, I think, look, you can never deny the fact that um, the Palace of the Lost City was a leap of faith. Um, but I think, you know, when, when Sol did a project like that, he always said, okay, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to get the best people in the world, world to work with me on this. And he'd bring in talent, and, you know, he'd create something that was unique, that was memorable, and he'd executed exceptionally well. And I think, you know, that's the story. I think it's being uh, able to combine that huge vision uh, with um, being able to execute on the detail and making sure that you can you know combine those two really key ingredients for any successful business yeah you got you got I've seen that with uh, great business entrepreneurs time and again they know the big stuff but they also understand the detail you you did mention uh, Bob Arams working with his son from Sol's right. point of view, when Butch, when his son died, and Butch was extremely highly rated by pretty much everybody. I remember talking after, uh, to people after he died in 2006, and he was hugely uh, regarded as, yes. as really walking in his father's footsteps. Did that, did that knock his dad back? Yeah, I think, you know, nobody ever recovers from the loss of a child. It's an awful thing, you know, to happen. And what was, uh, I had the privilege of working with Butch as well. And, you know, Butch was a remarkably good foil to his dad. They were, they were, they had, um, some similarities, but they also, they complemented each other so, so, so wonderfully. 
And you're right, he was a very talented guy and he was, you know, in a very promising career in, in corporate finance, uh, working, uh, I think it was Lehman Brothers, uh, no, sorry, it wasn't Lehman Brothers, I think it was, um, uh, it was one of the big, um, one of the big uh, companies, uh, in the States and, uh, so persuaded him to come and work for, for him and join him. And he then became CEO of the company and he had been CEO of the company for two years when he was killed in a helicopter smash in, in 2006 in the Dominican Republic. Um, I was at the time in Singapore, which I think is an interesting story as well, because it demonstrates Paul's grit uh, and determination. I was working on the, the, the bid that we were putting together for the Singapore casino license, which we subsequently lost, unfortunately. Um, but Sol literally you know, went to New York uh, buried his son in New York and got on a plane and flew across the world for 26 hours uh, to get to Singapore to come and make the presentation to the government on the submission that he had made. And, you know, he was one of those guys who he said, I want to do this for Butch. Butch believed in this project and I wanted to get it done. And that was the determination of this remarkable man. Extraordinary man, extraordinary story, uh, not without controversy. Uh, as I mentioned on, right. on Biz News, that uh, I went off all the way to Mauritius to, to interviewing, interview him in, two, in right. 1994 about all right. the controversy about alleged uh, corruption with, I think it was right. Kaiser Matanzima and Transcar. What did he, he right. told me he completely denied that there was anything to it. What did he say to you guys about the way that, that he was continuously uh, targeted on that? Yeah, look, I think he was, uh, it was something that got to him. It was something that upset him. Um, but it was something that, uh, I think, you know, he was ultimately, um, redeemed from in the sense that, uh, you know, Chris Nell, the attorney general of the Trans Sky, formally dropped all those charges against Solkers in 1997. I think what's important as well, Alec, is to say that, you know, Sol went on uh, after those allegations to be licensed uh, around the world to operate casinos. He was licensed in the UK and he was licensed in Atlantic City, New Jersey, which is known in the casino industry to be the toughest jurisdiction in the world to get licensed. So, uh, you know, what I'm saying is that if you get licensed in Atlantic City by the Casino Control Commission of the state of New Jersey, you know, they've gone through the detail and they've gone through the stuff and they've clearly satisfied themselves that there's nothing there because they don't take any chances on this stuff. Uh, for sure. So I think that's an important point to make on this uh, on this thing. And I think it was sad that it kept on going. I think South Africa was going through a challenging time and there were clearly, uh, you know, a lot of a lot of different points of view on this. But I think that was where it ended up. Yeah, and I went through something similar when I joined the board of Pomalela, which was in the in that, uh, well, in the gaming field, much, much smaller, obviously, than Atlantic City. But you don't get those right. licenses if you if you aren't, uh, well, pretty squeaky, squeaky clean. clean. Yeah. yeah he, exactly. he, he he did die in South Africa, so clearly uh, right. that didn't alienate him from, from the land of his birth. Oh, no. No, no, no. He was, uh, Sol was spending a huge amount of time in South Africa, you know, right through uh, his life. And he at no stage uh, ever stayed away. He loved South Africa. He loved uh, the rugby, he loved uh, the cricket, uh, and, uh, you know, all that South Africa represented. He came back, he, 
um, spent a lot of time at the Johannesburg Hotel School, which he, he founded um, in Auckland Park there. Um, and he loved being with the students and used to visit them every year and speak to them and you know, tell them about uh, what he thought were the things to think about in, in hospitality. No, I mean, so was, so was in South Africa all the time. He, in fact, spent probably the last eight months of his life in Cape Town at Leokopi, which is his home. And that was sadly where he passed away, uh, surrounded by his family and his friends, but his family particularly, of course. And uh, he was buried yesterday uh, in Cape Town. And uh, the family were present. I think, you know, everyone is very aware of this awful uh, COVID-19 pandemic. And uh, the family didn't want to do anything ir- irresponsible. So they kept the family uh, funeral very private. Um, just the family were involved to not expose anybody to the risks of large gatherings. But even even on his passing, uh, he didn't go out without a little bit of controversy there too. Fake news earlier in the yeah, day. Yeah. yeah. Where did how did yeah, that, all of that come about? Yeah. Look, I don't truthfully know what happened, but um, I know that Jeremy Mansfield, who I must say was very gracious about it and very apologetic about it. I think he was the first one to post that Sol had passed away on uh, what was what would have been Friday night. Um, which was wrong, and I don't know how Jeremy got the story. Well, I do, actually. He said he was told it by two very reliable sources. He named the sources to me, and I'm not going to go into that now, but they were clearly wrong. Uh, you know, and unfortunately, what happened as a consequence of that was that then um, the Sun International, the company that Sol founded in South Africa, also published uh, a statement totally um, in good faith believing that he had passed and the story just went out and and we we managed to get uh, everyone to withdraw the statements and then you know sadly he he did pass on the night of the Saturday as you mentioned just before 7 p.m. Yeah just to close off with what did you think about South Africa today clearly in the in the past he was he was one of the hugest supporters he was a, a, a big fan yeah. and I think friend of Nelson Mandela's yeah. what did yeah. he make of of where we are Look, uh, we talked about it a bit. Um, I think he felt that um, the era of the previous president, Mr. Zuma, was a uh, a time that um, that was very sad for South Africa. That there was a lot of uh, things that were happening that were that were very bad for the country, and he he certainly didn't um, uh, know, you know, he didn't know how to how to deal with that. He thought it was a great tragedy. Uh, I think in terms of the current leadership, I think he was a great fan of uh, President Ramaphosa. But I think most importantly, what Sol felt was that South Africa had this extraordinary um, you know, set of assets, the people who uh, are just naturally hospitable and great um, ambassadors for the country, the assets you know, in the geography and the topography and the weather. And he just felt this country had great potential. So... I think uh, he was saddened by some of the, the declines that had happened with the infrastructure and that. Um, and, but he always used to come back here, and he was a great supporter and a great defender of South Africa uh, on the international markets and with his international friends and, and acquaintances. Uh, he loved South Africa. It was his home. It always would be his home. And, uh, in fact, what was interesting as well was that Sol never ever took up citizenship of any other country. Uh, he remained a South African. He travelled on a South African passport. 
that of course had its challenges as well and I was often sorting out those those challenges of getting visas for all sorts of places um, but uh, he remained true to South Africa right to the end Ian Douglas, uh, a friend and, as you heard, a long-time colleague of the late Saul Curzons. May he rest in peace. David, it is a Jewish tradition, isn't it, mm-hmm. that, uh, that, that you get buried the next day? And so he died Saturday, Saturday night. Yeah. He's buried on Sunday. Mm-hmm. Within, well, sometimes they'll delay it uh, to wait for members of the family, but uh, they don't like to delay it uh, too long. In fact, in the very religious communities, they bury you almost immediately. You know, literally, uh, within a, within an hour or so of you dying, even if it is at night. But that is a tradition. I'm I'm interested to see he was buried in Cape Town. That's uh, um, I thought that maybe Johannesburg, you know, where he had been brought up. So that's interesting to hear as well. But I suppose that's where his love was. You know, he was very well. Everybody knew that he loved his his homestead in 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 the Cape. You know, there's an interesting story. I um. Um, that Ian brought up about his friends because I I played soccer and I'm still friendly with a man by the name of Hilly Chimes and old Hilly uh, when I was playing at Wits you know Hilly was a, a Hilly came he's older than me and he had met uh, Saul in the army and uh, remained a lifelong friend and when Saul had a party whatever it is he would fly Hilly there you know wherever he went and uh, you know to this day uh, I mean until uh, the tragedy. He was uh, a lifelong friend of Hilly's, you know. And Hilly was say, oh, I'm going to see Sol. And two different characters, you know. <laughs> Hilly laid back, successful businessman, but uh, not of Sol's stature. But Sol never forgot him for those few months that they spent in the army together. It's, it's quite extraordinary that somebody uh, gets to, and, and uh, Ian made that point as well, that, that he's, he never forgot his old friends. That Someone uh, gets to that level uh, uh, in a, on a global stage. You know, you, you, you're rubbing shoulders and, and uh, sharing jokes with a Frank Sinatra. And then if Hilly were to walk yeah. past, you wouldn't ignore him. You'd go and uh, give him a hug too. Absolutely. Well, I suppose not today, but, <laughs> but in the past. Uh, but that, but that, that's what's fascinating. And, you know, that's what I find, I always found endearing about Sol with all his, uh, never forgot Hilly. You know, and Hilly was cool about it as well. He was great to have Hilly, you know, and just took it in his stride. But they were friends. They, you know, when I, whenever I spoke to Hilly and said, where did you meet? No, we were in the army. And I think in those days, it was nothing more than three months that you spent together. I don't think it was the nine months that we had to spend or a year. So, um, also, yeah, interesting. I, and, and, um, you know, also, I, I, there were a number of occasions where I would go to presentations by Sol. And um, the one thing that distinguishes him and distinguishes business leaders is that he was always there in the front. Do you know what I mean? He knew every aspect uh, during the building of Sun City. I mean, uh, every little detail he seemed to have a hand in. And it was a fascinating experience to see the development of it. I think he brought in, and I wish Ian could have been there, I think they brought in some of the Disney designers, you know, the people who designed the Disney theme park. And Because a lot of those sculptures are nothing more than polystyrene, you know, covered in a, uh, a resin, which gave the, the feeling that these were marble. Or, uh, But beautiful, absolutely beautiful places that he built. Well, it has been a while since I've had the privilege of talking to Delphine Governor Perpetua, uh, the company that she has founded. In, in fact, Delphine, how old is Perpetua now? Um, hi, Alec. Good to talk to you again. So we are um, seven and a half years old now. We started um, managing money in October 2012. 
Wow. Seven um, not, and a half time flies. Eh? Yeah. Mm. It has flown. It has flown. And prior to that, you were one of the superstars at Alan Gray, uh, went off and, and uh, doing your own thing. And in this kind of a market, and we're going to talk about it in a moment, is it more difficult being uh, having your own business rather than having a, a, a big brand behind you? Well, I think it's a good question. Um, obviously, for companies that are more marginal, you tend to find that, you know, this, this would be tricky times. Um, important, though, for I think, and again, every every entrepreneurially run business is going to have different economics. Um, I think the important thing for investment firms is that if you have the right um, owners, so the right people that own you, and typically they should be investors as opposed to necessarily kind of short-term business owners, um, they tend to understand that investment businesses are, by their very nature, exposed to good and bad times, and that um, one can never predict um, the extent of both a, a bull run or a bear market. So um, there's just, you know, volatility is what you sign up for. Um, profits don't come in a straight line because your, your top line is totally geared to the level of the market. So having that understanding um, for any person starting an investment business is almost essential going in. I often think one of the most under underestimated or, or, um, or kind of under- you know, focused elements of investment firms is who owns you, and that and that they have this key understanding of of, of what you're signing up for. Well, David uh, David Shapiro is with us as well, Delphine. David, have you ever seen in your many years, many decades, uh, certainly many more decades than Delphine and I, <laughs> a, a market environment like this? I, I don't know if you were uh, you, you were close oh. enough to 1969 to to. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, uh, do you want me to list them, Alec? Um, I, I, you know, I'm just writing something for tomorrow, and uh, I remember the dark days of 1976. Okay, different story when the Soweto uprising. There were days in which we did not do a deal. We never, we never put a transaction through the stock exchange. Um, so I've lived through many, many difficult times. I came in the aftermath of 1969. I was doing chartered accountancy. But I remember 98, 87, uh, 2000, 2001, 2002, you know, all these, the wars, the 9-11, I mean, that was a disaster. And as Delphine says, you know, you learn to, this is just part of the journey. You know, so I, we, we seem to get one every six or seven years, and uh, you just have to understand it and position yourself properly and just move on. Delphine, I'm interested to get your take on this because Hendrik de Toy last week, uh, who, who you know well, who started what is now 91 uh, Investing Asset Management, he says we as investors should be looking at this as though it's a war where governments just spend money not worrying about. Uh, who's going to repay it? That'll come on another day. David was saying, yes, he, he, he agrees that it's, it is like a war that's going to last 90 days. How are you seeing it? Well, I think what both um, the observations by both, obviously, you know, highly experienced people that are, that are seeing it and have experienced more than just kind of, you know, two or three decades, is that um, it's showing you that actually no one knows how, what the scenarios are going to be. So what we're sitting with is we're sitting with incredible uncertainty and and i think what's hard and and you know when you ask david um have you seen anything like this before david um it's always the tricky thing is that why this feels so different and i mean i started my investment career as an analyst in march of 1998 so about 22 years ago um and we were just coming into this kind of peak of this you know incredible 
uh, bull market in South Africa, the likes of the Steinhardt and all of that were listing back then and then hit our first crisis. But where this one's different is that we've got these two threats. We've got this public health threat, which is very real, which, and then we've got this economic threat, which is multifaceted because it's the supply side, the demand side, the whole financial system. So why we're not sure and, and why we're sitting with this uncertainty is that in the response from government, from policymakers, from kind of the war rooms, you know, in every single um, kind of country and government right now, is trying to address all of these things. When historically, when we've had bubbles burst um, or event-driven issues, it's typically been constrained to a manageable kind of almost space. Um, and so now we're sitting with a situation where no one can prove or disprove what our worst-case scenario is going to be. There's We've got no experience of a similar situation, and so we've got no way of predicting an impact. So it could be that that absolutely indiscriminate spending is required, to, you know, both on the public health side and on the economic side. Um, but we do know we're facing potential scenarios where global growth could be, you know, significantly negative uh, double-digit growth in the next two quarters. Uh, which would be way worse, for example, than, than the Great Recession following the GFC. So, yeah, the, all of these are plausible. And I think that's what we're seeing now is that this uncertainty has created this massive, massive fog and blur. And so we're all, we're all and the market is really struggling to make investment decisions because of it. Mm. And Mr. Market is completely depressed. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think what's happening is that you're, you're seeing that because of of the of trying to work out, you know, who will come through, how will this happen? You know, Mr. Market is in, in even in the best of times always swinging between the extremes of you know euphoria, um, which typically is almost unsustainable, and then pessimism, which is often you know, um, un, you know, both unjustifiable and sustainable. And so you have this impatience and this irrationality. And there's you know they say um, you know when Benjamin Graham first coined it, he almost said there was like a manic depressive nature of Mr. Market. Um, and so, you, you know, the problem is, you know, we tend to, we, we're supposed to behave as the market is, is, you know, is there for us to take advantage of, not for, not in reverse. But as we know, in the short run, the opposite occurs. What about value investing, Delphine? I know this is your background uh, for looking for, for stocks that, that you can buy at a discount. It's value investing has been so out of fashion for so long. Do you think that this could be a, the transition that makes people look differently at stocks? Well, I think, you know, it's, it's a very, very, uh, you know, absolutely germane and relevant question, Alec. And it's funny because, you know, you asked when I started our business and it was 2012. And I probably, as a value investor with the benefit of hindsight, couldn't have picked a worse time because we literally started um, at, at a point where value, you know, has gone through this basically seven and a half year you know, terrible period. And, and I think what's been so difficult for value um, in this cycle compared to all previous cycles has been not just kind of um, the extent of, of, of the underperformance, but then how protracted it's been. You know, there's been the odd flash where, you know, certain sectors have, have done okay, but um, point to point, the last, you know, the better part of the last decade um, has been terrible. You know, really where value had its run was just coming out of the GFC. And I think that's the most important point is to understand, well, when is it that this style of almost, you know, fundamental driven investing tends to do well? And fortunately, we have quite a few crises that we can look to. Um, and, and what's interesting, you know, when we look at what happens in bull markets, and in bull markets is when, 
the value style, which tends to be more fundamental driven, tends to lag. Um, the bull markets, as we've seen them over, you know, the last, say, just two or three decades, have all been driven by slightly different things. You know, we had the tech boom in the 90s. We had the commodity super cycle, you know, after 2000s. And then more recently, you know, this thing, thing so-called, you know, uh, bull market has been really about platform companies, et cetera. Um, and we've seen how that's transmitted into our markets through the likes of NASDAQ. But bear markets, on the other hand, have this unique correlation. You know, you look at your screens today. And it's as though everything's correlated. Um, you know, South African use shares are down over 30%, you know, year to date. Resources are down over 40%. Uh, properties are down over 50%. The US market's down over, you know, 30%. The NASDAQ's down slightly less. Um, so you, you findings that bear markets are similar. So the question is, um, does this bode well for fundamental based investing? And interestingly, we've got the evidence to show that through all these cycles, as you, while value will perform equally poorly as we go into the bear market, as we've seen, coming out of it is where value typically um, performs significantly better. Um, and so this is why if you look post um, kind of the, the tech bubble bursting, post the, uh, the, the GFC, that value style tends to uh, perform significantly better. Um, and that's really because of where value managers tend to position their portfolios. Um, and what happens is that you tend to find that recovery um, is, is is what really makes those times. So obviously, you know, it might seem like we're talking about book, but we're actually basing it on on empirical evidence. And so when we're seeing kind of the absolute valuation that is available and then the ratio of kind of very expensive shares to very cheap shares, we've had this massive widening. Um, and so things bode well. And I guess the point is that we're dealing with, with shock and uncertainty and when you're in that in that space the best almost anchor to use is valuation so you avoid overvalued shares that are price for fiction and you and you buy assets that are priced for extinction and you try and do your work to ensure that you don't invest in potentially extinct shares which are being sold down as though they are going to go extinct which is a segue into Cecil surely uh, today, <laughs> today it's just over 20 rand a share yeah so I mean Cecil's Obviously, a, a very tough one because, um, you know, any value investing, including ourselves, would have, you know, would have probably not owned it at, um, you know, at, at multiples of, of the current price because it would have been extremely expensive. And then as it started coming off, um, you know, in the last several months, um, started to look interesting, notwithstanding some of their kind of self-inflicted issues. Um, I think the, the, so the issue with Sassel right now is, I mean, they came out, management did come out last week. Um, and, and remember, the real trigger event for Sassol is this combination of what has happened to the oil price uh, post the whole breakdown between OPEC and Russia, um, and then what that translates to to Sassol's kind of own balance sheet, given it's the level of net debt and how tight its kind of precarious um, situation is. So the, the, the scenario that was not envisaged was that we would be dealing with a $30 or sub-$30 oil price. Um, and so Sassol has come out, and, and, and given the plans, Basically, which is a, which is a pretty neaty plan, a six billion dollar you know program to reduce net debt. Um, and while you know the plan seems quite plausible because some of the stuff is, is quite within their control. For example, you know delaying expansion capex environments for capex, etc. So conserving about two billion dollars of cash, they seem to be quite well down the path of of asset disposal. So uh, and raising about two billion dollars, and then potentially raising a further $2 billion doing a partnership on their U.S. Um, chemicals business. Um, so 
the issue we have right now is not necessarily what is within Sasol's control, but this call on the oil price. And and so the market is now incredibly jittery because, and it would be true for, I guess, any oil majors who have similar balance sheets, is that the question is how, you know, this current oil price environment continues and is protracted. Um, you know, we'll see, you know, continued well-supplied markets and, you know, terrible demand, which then just means the, the oil price remains lower. And, and at some point, uh, and this is so the profitability of the business starts to come under pressure. And I think this, that's the, the bigger factor right now that is in, in investors' minds um, is really how long will this oil price um, stay lower. But isn't the point with Sassel that it's a RAND oil price? And if you offset uh, what the RAND has been doing, the way the RAND has fallen out of bed, it must surely give them some kind of a shield. Well, you know, this absolutely. And in fact, if you've gone back over long periods of time and you, and you, and you plotted the correlation, um, it's absolutely the tightest correlation, you know, over long periods of time has been the Sassel share price relative to the Rand oil price. So it's been, and that's why it's been always perceived as one of those kind of almost perfect Rand hedges in a way, um, for South African investors particularly. But I think what's been very unique and curious, and I think this is where things have become tough, is that, um, in the last period, particularly in the last six, 12 months, that actual relationship broke to some extent in that Sassol, because of some of its own self-inflicted issues, and we saw, you know, if you're following the journey of Sassol, you know, late last year, um, it became less of a call on, on the RAND, on the level of the RAND, and more of a call on the oil price and then the business's own kind of own action. Um, and so we've had a break. I mean, we saw the same thing with Sassy to an example. So if, if you were running almost a barbell portfolio, as many fund managers were doing, coming into this year, which is buying some of the cheaper SA ink that, you know, we thought could withstand and then trying to add, uh, you know, and, and hedge that with some, you know, rand hedge, that's all wasn't proving, you know, to, to be that kind of perfect rand hedge that it has historically been. So that relationship has broken um, of late. So uh, what is your suggestion now to your clients? I'm sure, not just clients, family and friends are saying, well, we know that Delphine, this is her game. Uh, let's ask her what to do. Should we be jumping in and buying cheap now? Should we uh, be selling everything? Or should we be sitting on the sidelines waiting for better days? Yeah. So, I mean, it's, 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 it's the question, right? Um, and I think the reality is that what we do know is, because, I mean, we too are invested in the market. We too are invested in funds alongside our clients. Exactly as you say, we're managing indirectly, you know, our family members, uh, pension funds, you know, depending, you know, where they, where they have been employed in the past. So people are scared. People are panicked. And it comes all the way back to the point that I made in the beginning, because we actually, we don't know how bad it's going to be, get. But I think the point is that we need to have something that we can hang our hats on and something that we can say, can we look to see while this might be a completely different crisis and it might be multifaceted? Um, how can we know historically there was a great depression? What worked then? What could we, what could we look to saying could work down? I think the point is that we must remember how the market works. You know, you spoke about this market, and the market and the market, um, always reacts in, in advance. So well before, some, you know, something happens, typically the market is that discounting mechanism. And so what the market's telling you right now is that economic, you know, and business conditions are going to are going to get worse. And, and I think that's now almost consensus. We just don't know how bad. 
the market's telling you, you know, COVID-19 and coronavirus is going to spread. We don't know where death will peak, but it's going to definitely spread. Um, and the reality is that's what's being priced in. So you look at the prices of banks, retailers, property companies, anything that has, that's, you know, basically anything really, industrial companies, manufacturers. So the question is equally on the opposite end, as we start to see some sort of light at the end of the tunnel, the market and the share prices are going to react on the upside before things actually demonstrate improvement. Um, and so the way we look at it is we say, well, which are the businesses that we think will make it through that, that can, that can actually generate cash even under dire uh, kind of top line scenarios or, or, or and can generate potentially positive profits, even if they're small and, and significantly down from the prior year, but not necessarily losses, um, and can actually sell funds. So can they make them make it through this period? Um, so have reasonably kind of short balance sheets with an ability to just kind of get through. Because if you can find those businesses, um, I think you have a massive buying opportunity. Um, as long as you avoid kind of the pockets of overvaluation, avoid the bankruptcy risk. It sounds obvious, but at the same time, we're almost putting too many quite decent companies in the bankruptcy risk basket. And so if we as, as kind of fundamental investors can work out, well, these ones will survive because now the market is contracted. I think if you can find positive net income, positive operating cash flow, you know, it becomes what you what you can use as your anchor in, in a bear market. So we, you know, to the extent our balance funds, for example, are, have been well below fully invested. So this is, we're actually putting, this is when you put your dry powder to work. But um, with an opportunity of higher grading your portfolio, you have no reason to buy poorer cyclical businesses now because actually really solid businesses, which are typically ungeared, are trading on on way more depressed multiples. So this is the time to kind of to take advantage. The preface, though, is that we know things can get worse, but what we're not trying to do is time it. We know that there can be temporary declines further in share prices, and you can perhaps average down even lower as you purchase. Um, what we're trying to do is look through it to say, well, where are the sustainable earnings um, looking through this? Because we know the market will respond sooner than when the actual kind of improvement is revealed. Delphine Govender, the founder of Perpetua, with, uh, as always, lots of common sense. David? Oh, absolutely. You know, I, I was, uh, when we were talking earlier, I said that the shock value is out of the market now. We know what, what lies ahead, and markets will start to look ahead. And that's why you have to position yourself for where you're going to be in the next two, three years. And it's absolutely essential that you get the kind of businesses that are going to survive and prosper. Uh, during these times, you don't have to, you know, in my view, we don't have to get the turnaround stocks. You don't have to look at Cecil and say, you know, is it a gamble? You know, is it going to come out of this downswing? Why? There's so many other options available to you that you don't have to make that kind of, you know, the, the, those kind of choices. So personally, uh, that's exactly what I'm doing here sitting at my desk now. Is, is trying to work out where we should be placing, uh, you know, where we should be placing our clients' money. You know, I see another aspect of it. I'm, look, I'm very big into tech, as we were talking about earlier. I still think that tech companies are, have got so much cash on their balance sheets and therefore can sustain uh, research and development. They can sustain CapEx without even selling a product. Um, the other story is that there's going to be a big swing towards health. Uh, in the same way as in 08 and 09, we did stress testing on banks. 
we're now going to start doing stress testing on healthcare systems, whether hospitals can cope, because that's what's behind the whole COVID-19, is the worry that uh, hospitals will be overwhelmed. This is an area we've ignored. There's been so much pressure on pharmaceutical companies to cut back because of their overpricing. I think all of those issues are now going to subside and uh, a lot more liberal attitude will be taken towards that. So plenty of plenty of places to look for uh, in the next couple of years. Well, David, we've been talking uh, a theme, if you like, over the last few weeks about this switch, this transition to mm-hmm. tech and the way that if you are going to be investing, do look for those companies that can take advantage of the fourth industrial revolution, the, the, the new world, because if nothing else, COVID-19 is probably going to push us in that direction. I think even more so. You know, we were already moving towards the data economy, um, however you want to explain it, fourth industrial revolution. And uh, I think, if anything, I think what we've learned through uh, this COVID-19 from people staying at home, from people not uh, learning at home, from people doing business at home. Yes, we need people. You know, we're not, we can't completely isolate ourselves, but I think things are going to change dramatically uh, in favor of businesses that are positioning themselves correctly. We're going to Durban now to meet James Lease. He's uh, got a company called AdvantageLearn.com. Uh, James, what is it that you guys do? Hi, Alec. Hi, David. Thanks for having me on your show. What we do is we're a company that's passionate about um, making sure that learners are age, are going to become agents in the first in the fourth industrial revolution. So, why are not objects? Um, so, what we've been focusing on in the last couple of years is really producing resources and starting producing resources that are going to enable um, learners to become agents in 4IR. And so we've focused um, predominantly into maths first and mathematics training. So we've got advanced math programs. We've got mathematic um, mathematics solutions from grade 8 to grade 12. Um, and then we've also um, tried to help South African learners get access to um, the right degree programs that they need through national benchmark tests preparation but we've really been passionate from about 2015 on trying to do this in a scalable way online so specializing in high school maths yes correct we we currently focus into into high school and and how do you do that how do you actually help people clearly we 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 yeah. we, we, we you up because we spoke about online but uh, you, yeah. you would do it in 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 a in a different way to the classroom environment yeah, so one thing that we, we realized um, a couple of years back is that we, we realized, you know, there was, there was a lot of kind of doom and gloom with the, with the South African education um, system and, and all the rest. And we all know the, and are aware of the challenges that we have. Um, but what we actually realized was we realized that, you know, we have some of the best educators in the world, um, arguably in the world. Um, and it was really just a question of access. Um, and so... We, we thought, well, one way we can, we can try and help this is by simply capturing these educators in video form and then trying to deliver them via web technologies and different accessible technologies as the, the technology stack kind of evolves and grows. And um, so that, you know, students can get access to these top class educators um, because that's one of the core core challenges is just really getting access access to that knowledge, access to that 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 educator. And so that's really where we thought we could start. Um, so we started with maths and we um, we took a very experienced um, educator, Trish Pike, um, who 
was been as many many of the private schools in, in South Africa and Johannesburg, St. Sivians and Kersey um, and Thomas More in in KZN. And we said, right, Trish, we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna produce your raw material, um, and that's how we kind of started it. Um, and how many videos or tutorials do you have? So for our mathematics solution from grade eight to grade twelve, we've got over two thousand um, learning videos. Uh, we've really been mindful of how we produce those videos in a, as short um, as short as possible, but as long as necessary type form, and so they're not too long um, where, where learners would get bored or lose lose focus. Um, and yeah, with that, we've also focused on on building what we call test your understanding. So we follow a very simple pedagogy, and that's just learn, practice, assess, um, and just repeating that kind of that kind of um, model and through repetition. Uh, so yeah, we've got about over two thousand at the moment. And how well are they accessed? Um, in terms of numbers of students, yeah, uh, with, yeah. So they they access pretty well. Um, it could be it could be a lot larger um, in terms of getting numbers onto our platform. Um, but we we are at the beginning of our journey in that. I mean, we've we've had the solution finished from uh, about mid twenty eighteen. So it's really it's really um, not that old. Um, but they are being the usage that we're seeing from learners is what's incredible. When when they do come online on top platform, they really are seeing enormous benefits, um, and we get some really great um, some great data from that to to kind of show their progression um, as they go through and and get better at their subject. And that is the, the the whole story. You know, opening it up once someone's tested. We've seen it on our side with webinars, for instance. Some when somebody who's used to doing presentations and all the hassle factor that goes with it, suddenly discovers there's a webinar at a fraction of the cost, they jump in. And I guess that would have been part of the motivation for you to do your COVID-19 bit and opening up your platform uh, to to anyone for free uh, during this period. Yeah, most definitely. I mean, we, we talk about it at, um, at AdvantageLearn.com about this mental hurdle um, that that is around kind of online learning and and some people have have made that jump earlier um you know they the, the early adopters they've, they've jumped over it quite quite early and others are kind of you know get onto it more gradually um and with COVID 19 i think you know there's two these two kind of very positive benefits for us here at advantage learn i mean we really did it was really sincere in our approach we really did want to help we knew that learners would have a big challenge and educators as well just being Know, continuing their learning um, during this time, um, and so we really thought we could help there, and, and and moved on that. But then it also is about you know helping people get over that mental hurdle um, to online learning. And obviously, very South African focused. Do, do the different provinces still write different exams now? Um, no. So so they the, the two main um, systems of education and high school level at the moment are obviously you, you've got the state DVE and then the um, the, the IEB, um, but both both follow the CAPS curriculum um, and they are focused, all the education systems are focused on um, the NSC exam in a grade 12 level um, and now they are starting to think about introducing something called the GEC at a, at a grade 9 level. Um, so those are the main, the main kind of um, testing points is at a grade nine level and then at a grade grade twelve level, and all the provinces follow the follow the same except right. for the international curriculum. So the point here is that uh, the parents who are listening to this and have got their 
their loved ones at home now because the school's closing and so on, they can go push them towards AdvantageLearn.com and uh, your website, in other words, and they'll be able to access tutorials on maths and become maths whizzes during the next <laughs> few months when they're, when they're kept at home. In other words, they can't just sit there and, and, uh, and twiddle their thumbs. Exactly, exactly. It's a great time to actually improve your maths while you, while you don't have to like rush through the syllabus um, in, in the school environment. So, yeah, we, we need the mathematicians clearly to become, you know, to protect us from whatever the future throws at us. So get learning. <laughs> James Lees is from AdvantageLearn.com. Isn't that a nice story, Dave? And I, 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 yeah, I, yeah. It kills me, you know, that because uh, I loved maths and science at school. I mean, listen, I'm matriculated. I can't even remember back in the <laughs> 60s and that. You know, you know, like we had teachers who were so old and so bored, you know, and, and, and you set your sights on getting 60 or 70%. That was about the best, you know, that you could do with those kind of teachers. And when you see what's available to kids today, I mean, it's so enthralling. And, and therefore, anybody who does want to learn has access to these you know, incredible teachers and uh uh, programs and that, you know, and that that I apply even through my university career. Boy, mm. so things have changed for the benefit. I think I need my life again. Well, who knows? Maybe <laughs> there's some people who say you will have another life, David, uh, and and I look forward to broadcasting with you in that life as well. Although <laughs> this time we'll just stay away from television. I think yeah. we'll just keep doing the, doing the radio stuff. Well, Dave, as always, good good to. Uh, to have you uh, through the program today, it, it worked okay. I mean, it's it's better when we're in studio, but we yeah. certainly have been nicely connected. Fascinating stories, and I think just this last one uh, before we part, James's uh, point there yeah. that when people, it's it's a little bit like a really good curry. If you don't know what curry is, uh, well, you'd ignore it, and you you might even diss it. But when you do taste it. You realize that there's a whole new world out there that you can, you can start experimenting with. And I guess with online education and learning yeah. and, and, and absorbing, it is something that is very different for many people. But my goodness, once you, you've tasted it, whew. It is, and you reach such a wide audience. You know, and I think that's the beauty about this. You know, even talking about the webinars. You're reaching people that you could never reach before by simple invitations. So, I listen. I find this all very exciting. <laughs> Whole new world for mm. for us here. Well, this has been Rational Radio on uh, this latest episode, 23rd of March. Thanks for being with us. Don't forget that we have a brand new daily podcast, Inside COVID-19, which uh, we'll be running for as long as it takes, uh, which will keep you up to date in the world's war with the viruses and germs that uh, came from that awful wet market in Wuhan. We look forward to being back in your company with Rational Radio and same time, same place next week. But please don't forget to keep updated on COVID-19 by coming on to Biz News and uh, you can download that, that podcast or indeed uh, subscribe to it in the same way as you subscribe to this one. I'm Alec Hogg. Until the next time, cheerio.